Hi, and welcome to Policy, Guns and Money. Coming up in this week's episode, Lisa Sharland interviews NATO Special Representative for Women, Peace and Security, Claire Hutchinson, on the progress of the WPS agenda. Huang Li Tu and Rod Lyon discuss the upcoming US-North Korea summit in Vietnam and what the latest round of talks between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un might bring. But first, Tom Uren and Elise Thomas from Aspie's cyber team discuss the revelations that a sophisticated state actor was behind cyber attacks on Australia's parliament and major political parties. G'day, Elise. Welcome to the podcast. Your first time on the podcast. Thank you very so, much. So, from my point of view, the news of the week has been dominated by the Parliament House hack and the subsequent revelation by the PM that the Labor, Liberal and National Parties were also attacked. And one thought is perhaps that the political parties were attacked because Parliament House was a bit hard to attack. Uh, the, the Parliament network's been breached before. And one thing that makes networks get better at security is the actual fact of having to deal with attacks. So what do you think about that theory? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. If you can't get in through the front door, you go in through a window. The The political parties were given, I think, $75,000 in funding, uh, was it last year, to um, improve their own cybersecurity? But clearly, uh, well, it, it suggests that that's probably not enough. What, what else do you worry about in terms of weak points in our politicians? I worry about the uh, individual cybersecurity of politicians themselves, um, also their families, also their staff members who might have access to valuable information um, or who might provide a, um, a way to get into those more secure networks. So, for example, if their personal devices are compromised and credentials are stolen that way, that could be a, a way to get into a more secure network like the Parliament House networks. One thing I've noticed has been on Twitter, a number of politicians have, or should I say, a number of politicians' accounts have liked potentially embarrassing tweets. And it seems like the culture around managing account access is just not that good in parliament offices and their staff. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, on the individual Twitter account breaches, I mean, some of them are a complete mystery. Um, but uh, in general, yeah, I think the the approach um, to account management, particularly, um, and I don't think it's, I don't think this is a thing which is unique to political organisations. I think, for example, if you go into a lot of uh, corporate organisations, um, management of those. Uh, social media accounts is pretty broadly shared. You often find the password taped to a computer somewhere. So, yeah, absolutely. One of the other things that the Parliament House and political party breaches brought up was electoral interference. And the PM in his statement said there's no evidence of electoral interference. So we've been asked about that quite a lot. What's your take? Define electoral interference. Like what what, what does that term mean? Because I, I suppose there are a lot of different ways in interfering in elections. And when he says there's no evidence of electoral interference, just the fact that this has happened and has been announced publicly will influence the elections. So when you say electoral interference, I think you have to be quite clear what you actually mean. Um, and we don't really know a lot about what motivated this hack. We don't know what they were looking for. We don't know what they got hold of. Um, but yeah, I, I would say you have to be quite precise when you use a term like electoral interference, what that actually means. Yeah. So my interpretation of what people have been saying is that there's no evidence that people are directly trying to influence the election. And I think that one possibility that 
has been talked about quite a lot is that some of the emails from political parties are released publicly in a damaging way. So in the US 2016 presidential election, that was probably the single most damaging thing that the Russians did. That actually seems to be the the, the tactic that they used that, that did have an influence. It kept Hillary's email uh, alive as an issue and contributed to a perception that she was a bit tricky. I'm not convinced that that'll happen in our election, but it's definitely a possibility. I think that people are a bit more alive to the that tactic and that our media could respond differently. I think if there's a smoking gun, uh, if there's proof of corruption or misdealing, it doesn't matter whether it's a hack or not. But I think if it just contributes to a perception, I think that could be a different story. Yeah, and I think an interesting comparison to the what happened in the 2016 campaign with the Podesta emails is the more recent hack of German politicians um, and sort of the, the much more measured reaction by the German public and by the German media to that hack. Um, it's hard to say whether that reflects sort of a, a more sophisticated understanding of how these um, sort of information leaks are being used for political purposes or whether it reflects cultural differences and situational differences between the 2016 elections um, in the US and sort of the, the German um, political situation as it is now, not in the middle of an electoral cycle. But yeah, I, I think uh, in general, people are becoming more aware that these are political activities. Yeah, I think that's fascinating, the difference, the, the cultural differences. One of the possibilities that occurs, though, is that there could be not electoral interference, but foreign interference. So some of the data that would be available, particularly in the political parties, deals much more with the personalities and the individuals involved rather than government policy. So from a Western intelligence point of view, we gather intelligence to inform our own government about how to act and how to position ourselves and how to uh, behave diplomatically, how to, how to present an argument that could possibly sway the other party. But one possibility is that that kind of information could be used to coerce or cajole or twist the arm of people who then influence our Australian politics. And so that's one thing that worries me because that would be very, very hard to detect, could happen over many years, and we'd frankly have to be lucky to figure that out. Yeah, and that, that comes back to the point I was making earlier about the personal security, uh, personal cybersecurity of yep. politicians, their families, their staff, um, particularly as we come into the era of the Internet of Things and we have all of these devices in our homes with cameras and microphones, which are... Well, there's a there's a lot of discussion about the, the incredible poor security of a lot of Internet of Things devices. Um, there was actually a, an article out just today um, about the Google Nest device, uh, which has turned out to have a microphone that they didn't tell anybody about. Yep, the secret um, microphone. <laughs> the trick. secret microphone. Um, so that that kind of thing, you know, you can easily see how that could be weaponized by a state that wanted to collect blackmail information. Um, if they like, they they don't have to plant bugs in your home anymore. You bring them home, you install them yourself. All they have to do is hack into them. Um, so that's a challenge that I think we are definitely going to have to face in the years to come. One word that we've not mentioned so far in this discussion is China. <laughs> Everybody seems to think that this hack was China, but there's a question about should the government actually 
say that it's China if, if it is? Or, or should they name who it was if they know? One thing is it's actually hard to figure this out in the first place. The second point I'd like to make is that you, you name people and do what's called attribution in the cyber realm for a, for a purpose. And the purpose that the Australian government seems to have so far is to try and deter activity they think is unacceptable. So they've blamed Russia for many basically pretty destructive things and they've named China when China was doing commercial espionage, so stealing intellectual property for commercial advantage. In this particular case, it's not clear if this is, air quotes, acceptable espionage for just intelligence or, air quotes, unacceptable espionage for foreign interference. So I'm sceptical that we'll ever have an official naming of who is responsible. Any thoughts? I think you're probably right. I think we'll probably see more of um, the same strategy that we're seeing at the moment where there's no official attribution but there's very strong backgrounding to a number of different journalists that it was China. Yeah, so I don't come from a journalistic background. What's interesting to me, you use the word strong backgrounding. Can you explain what that actually means? Uh, well, of course, um, journalists have a range of different sources and there are some sources who are willing to put their name on the information that they give and there are some sources who will only speak on background. Um, and I think you can see that coming out in a lot of the reporting around this um, where they use phrases like there are strong suspicions it was China. That's not the journalist's suspicion because the journalist doesn't know. The journalist hasn't gotten in there and looked at the forensic digital evidence. Um, the journalist has been told that by somebody who wasn't willing to put their name on the piece. And I think the fact that you're seeing that come out so strongly through the reporting suggests that there is quite a lot of backgrounding going on. And so this would be backgrounding from, from government officials who should know. Yeah, and it's sort of, it's one of those things where sometimes you might receive some background information from an individual who is who is just giving you that information, or sometimes it might be sort of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing, um, and it's sort of a, a bit of a wider push to get that information out there. So we've had unofficial official confirmation. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Now we'll hear from NATO Special Representative Claire Hutchinson, who was in Australia last week as the keynote speaker at ASPE's Women, Peace and Security Masterclass. Hi Claire, delighted to have you here in Australia. It's your first visit here. Hi Lisa, yes it is, and it's uh, wonderful uh, to be here. I'm very happy. So for our listeners, um, you have the wonderful title of the NATO Secretary-General's Special Representative on Women, Peace and Security, which is a bit of a mouthful. What does that role involve? It, it, it is a long title, so you can just call me Claire. Um, so, the, so this is a, quite a unique position. It was created, established in 2012. I'm the third special rep. And the role of the special rep is to be the, the policy energizer, I would say, for women, peace and security mandate. And that is how do we then bring in the United Nations Security Council resolutions on women, peace and security into the framework of a NATO context. So we provide, we develop the policy, we do the advocacy at the political level where we will present to our North Atlantic Council our progress and our implementation. And then we use our new policy and our policy principles, which are integration, inclusiveness and integrity, and we frame our work around that so we can help our bi-strategic commands and, and our work, especially with our gender advisors on the ground. Fantastic. And I think, you know, part of the 
the reason that it's it's great to have you out here in Australia is, of course, that Australia is a, a partner of NATO and has had gender advisors deployed in Afghanistan, for instance, as part of NATO operations. I guess moving on sort of in terms of where you've got to in your career, I guess a few people would be interested to know, how did you land in this position? Have you always been passionate about this topic or what kind of, I guess, brought you to the women, peace and security agenda? I've always been and I will always be a strong feminist so that I come from a background of, of, of where women's rights are important to everything. But I did not work. I started out working in communications, risk communications, actually, uh, where we I worked in Canada. Uh, I was a journalist. I was a reporter. I worked in the media. Um, and I worked in public relations. And then eventually I went back to university mid-career because I had stumbled across the situation in Bosnia and the the women reaching out to talk about their lives and what was happening in terms of the disproportionate impact of conflict on them. And it was something that really did change my life because I realized from my position of privilege as, as someone who comes from a very safe place, uh, I grew up in the north of England, that there was so much more we should do. And I always say I'm driven by the fact I have a voice that I can help others that don't. And to be able to position what I believe is women's rights and women's equality at a political, in a political framework. And I think that was something that really resonated with um, um, the masterclass. So uh, for those that aren't aware, we had a masterclass here at ASPE yesterday on women, peace and security. And Claire was our keynote speaker. Um, and um, I think those discussions around being in a position of privilege and being in a position where you can influence some of these discussions, particularly for people who don't have that voice, is is so, so important. I wanted to go back to something that you actually said yesterday at the, the masterclass that we had. And um, I think if I've quoted you directly, you said, gender parity is not a surrogate for gender equality. What did you mean by that? Yeah, there's there's a an assumption that if we we just approach parity, meaning balance, meaning getting equal number of women and men, that we've solved the problems that the issue of gender inequality, the root causes of inequality, are solved. Not all women represent gender parit uh, gender balance, not uh, gender equality. Not all women support other women. Uh, so you can actually have women equal number of women at the table. But what we're looking to do is change the thinking around what does equality mean. You cannot have gender equality if you're simply just counting numbers. You have to also integrate into your into your legislation, into your policies, into your mindset, and breaking down the barriers that are those obstacles for women to advance. If we're just simply going to count numbers, we'll just have numbers. And I think it, we have to be a little bit more strident about what we really are looking forward to in equality. And it's both increasing numbers of women, but it's also making sure we change the game. We change the landscape about women's rights. No, I think that's a really important important point that we're not just ticking boxes on some of these issues, that we are delving down into the substantive. I guess for a, a broader, and, and some of the discussion we had yesterday was um, around some of the emerging issues, um, for lack of a better term, that we see happening in international security and defence in foreign policy at the moment. And some of the points that you touched upon related to counterterrorism, cyber, maritime security, um, energy security. Could you tell us a little bit about why these are areas that, that perhaps you're starting to get involved in in your work? Everything has a gender perspective, everything that we do. And in NATO, we, we understand that this is the core of the work we do in, across our three, 
metric or tasks. And so it is integral to the work we do. It cannot be siloed into just the issue of let's deploy more women into the military, onto the ground, or let's just talk about it in terms of increasing women. But we have to make sure that in the work we do of cybersecurity, understanding the exponential growth of women who work who, who work against peace, for example, uh, in the world of cyber or, or as hackers or crackers in the systems or whatever. We also need to look at energy security and where does gender play a role. Maritime security, how does it affect women disproportionately? Uh, the, the issues, both in terms of climate and maritime, and make these linkages, all, which all flow back to the central issue about how does this affect women differently. And everything that we do in defense and peace and security has an effect on women differently to men. If we fail to integrate this thinking into some of the more the more emerging areas, um, I think it's at our peril. I think we miss something that can be eventually quite dangerous for us because there is a, a growing need uh, for us to raise awareness about the linkages between gender perspectives and all of these new emerging areas. And just to illustrate that a little bit, we had a bit of a, a conversation around the, the concept of do no harm. And that there, and and that you have, I think, as part of your career, seen instances where gender hasn't been adequately considered, and it's actually done some harm in situations. Could you illustrate that a, a little bit for us? Yeah, there's many. We go in thinking the right thing uh, and hoping to do the right work, but because we don't think through on the gender aspect. And I was given an example once of the, in terms of the the deployment of food and when uh, and looking at post Haiti post earthquake, and when food packages are being dropped, and the idea that if you you were letting women and men both go initially to to get the food to access the packages, the women were being beaten away. So the idea was setting up a perimeter. Uh, so men would stand behind the perimeter and women would go and collect the packages. And of course, there was only security up to the perimeter. So the minute they left the base, they were being, um, they were being attacked. We, of, we often do things, and this is both in development and security, putting money into women-only programs, for example, when men are unemployed and then you see spikes of domestic violence. Uh, we saw also uh, cases, in again, in Haiti where there were spikes in sexual violence overnight and it wasn't actually there were spikes in sexual violence because the women were knew they could get bigger tents in safer areas if they were if they were reporting that they had been abused. So, you know, I think one of the things we have to assume is that we have to stop the assumption that women are stupid and that women are all victims and waiting for somebody to help them, that they're very much agents in their destiny. But we also have to understand this coupled with the do no harm approach, make sure that what we're doing is not really going to cause a lasting effect in a negative way for women. And to do that, the only way we can do that is by talking to women and asking them what is it you need and what is it we can do for you. Absolutely. Um, and, and I guess a question that for a lot of us working in this field at the moment is a daily question. Um, when you look at what's happening globally, when you do see some pushback when it comes to issues around women's rights and equality, in your view, are we making progress on this agenda at the moment? I think it would be unfair to say we haven't made any progress. In terms of women, peace and security, the adoption of the United Nations Security Council resolutions is in 2000. And absolutely we've made progress from that time because we're talking about it. And we certainly wouldn't be talking about it if we, if we didn't have those resolutions in place. But we certainly haven't gone fast enough. And it's the 20th anniversary next year. I think we should really 
hold ourselves into into account, really take stock and work out why it's taken us as long as it has. I, I think in many other areas we wouldn't have the trajectory as slow, but when we're talking about women's rights, we're talking about women's empowerment, we're talking about justice and accessibility for those who've been victims of sexual violence in conflict or women who are not having political power in post-conflict or conflict environments. I think we need to be a little bit more critical. We haven't gone far enough. We haven't pushed hard enough. And I think it's the time to be more bold and more courageous. We have to say exactly what it is we want and where we need to be to be in the future. And to do that, we need to measure ourselves and, and really evaluate where we've come from and where we need to be. It's time. It's time to, to, to get our skates on. We've got to go faster. No, and I think that's a really good note to, to conclude on because I know over the last few days you've certainly, I think, energised and inspired a lot of people in Canberra, um, both who have worked on this agenda and who are relatively new to, to working on aspects of it. Um, look, let me say it's a delight that we've we've had you in Australia and that I think you did have an opportunity to see a kangaroo, which was which was fantastic. At least one of those boxes was ticked. But we look forward to, to keeping in contact as you um, continue your impressive work and important work um, at NATO in the years ahead. Thank you very much. And it's been an absolute joy to be here. And, and of course, as one of our important partners in NATO, I'm, I'm delighted I could be here. And thank you, Lisa, for your good work. You, you know, I follow you and it's fangirl to you as well. So I thank you and, and thanks to Aspie for all the incredible work you're doing as well. Fantastic. Thank you. Next up, Huang and Rod talk about whether we might see any meaningful progress to denuclearization in North Korea from round two of talks between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. Hi, Rod. Hi, Huang. So we have the dates confirmed, 27th to 28th of February, and we have the venue, Hanoi, for the second Trump and Kim summit. What can we expect this time now that we have two days of negotiations, not one day like the previous one in Singapore? Well, well, it'd be nice to think that the two days were going to reflect uh, a lot of detailed preparation that has been done for this summit. And I think in, in, a, in a good sense, both sides are slightly better prepared now than they were in Singapore. I think in Singapore, we had a summit before the work had been done. And I hope we've, we've partly got over that hurdle now. I doubt we've got over it all the way. Uh, so I think we're still looking for a partial agreement and not a full agreement on the denuclearization side. Right, after a Singapore summit, President Trump tweeted that North Korea is no longer a nuclear threat. And ahead of the summit, I think the narrative has shifted from uh, demanding uh, North Korea to completely denuclearize into different uh, kind of expectations, including um, economic development. What do you think um, has changed in terms of expectations from Washington? I don't think they've abandoned it. But I do think they now accept it's going to take many years. I think when they went to Singapore, they went on the basis that the Libyan model might hold. And the Libyan model meant Libya really wanted to get rid of its nuclear capabilities and it wanted someone to assist them to do it. And the only way Singapore could have been successful is if Kim Jong-un had turned up in Singapore wanting to get rid of his own arsenal. And he didn't turn up doing that. So the Singapore summit was a meeting between two heads of government before the background work had been done on how the North Korean nuclear program was to be reined in. 
I think Americans now accept that on a long multi-year deal to wind back North Korean capabilities, that they're going to have to do it by a series of steps. Uh, and I think they want to take the first step this year in two particular areas. Namely, they want a continuing constraint on the development of the ICBM program by North Korea. And I think, secondly, they want uh, constraints on the further production of fissile material by the North Koreans. So that would both cap the threat arising from the future development of the nuclear weapon program, and it would leave the North Koreans with an ICBM that was yet not fully capable of doing the targeting of continental US. And that's the sort of US that would be prepared to intervene on the side of its allies in Asia. So I think those are two big parts of a likely agreement that the US would be pushing for. Now, the, the puzzle is what does it give North Korea in exchange for that? I don't think it wants to do a nuclear for nuclear trade. So it doesn't want to turn up agreeing to constrain North Korea's nuclear capabilities, but at the price of its own extended nuclear deterrence arrangements in Northeast Asia. So I think it's looking for things to give North Korea that aren't straight nuclear for nuclear swaps. And uh, that might be some relief on sanctions, or it might be something political like the declaration the Korean War is now over, or it might even be assistance with the broader North Korean economy as, it, as North Korea wants to grow that economy into something different from what it's had in the past. What do you see as being some of the options there? Yeah, I think um, the choice of this venue, of this time, this summit's venue is not accidental. Of course, we can talk about the convenience um, of distance. Um, um, it is close enough uh, for Trump, uh, for, for Kim to fly in. And Trump has been there before. So there is a convenience of, of, of the location. Um, it is safe as a one party state and its public security has been really good. Uh, but I think a, a neutrality, Vietnam as one of the ASEAN countries always emphasized uh, on the neutral, neutrality and ability to provide uh, a ground for difficult negotiations. But I think um, the choice of venue, it's more than that. It is um, about the symbolism uh, of Vietnam, who was also uh, once um, the U.S. enemy and now had been uh, able to uh, establish quite meaningful relationship with the U.S. In fact, um, Vietnam is considered one of the most active partners in the U.S. Uh, for the U.S. Indo-Pacific um, vision of the region. An economic development uh, case of Vietnam, the case of economic development of Vietnam, started in the late uh, 1980s with the reforms called Doi Moi, and everybody's referring to that, that perhaps this is a moment we could see some sort of reforms from North Korea. Um, I think uh, there are um, real signals that Kim might be interested in economic reforms. For example, his New Year's um, uh, address mentioned economic development 20 some times, whereas, uh, for example, um, by contrast, he mentioned nuclear uh, weapons only two times in his New Year address. So there is, there is this hope that um, his interest in economic development is genuine. 
um, and perhaps Vietnam could serve as a model. There aren't that many possible models for North Korea to start with. And I think um, there would be a lot of differences between Vietnam and North Korea. Vietnam in 1980s and North Korea now. But there are, as I said, there aren't many other options uh, for, for serving as a model. What is interesting for North Korea, I think, is that Vietnam uh, managed to open economically and integrate with the global uh, trade and the global economic system, but managed to, to keep its party, its one-party regime in place, so without risking its political continuity. And I think that is what, obviously, Kim would be interested in. Well, one of the things that people speculate about is that by pursuing a closer relationship with South Korea, North Korea can be a little more indifferent to the relationship it has with Washington. Do you think Kim sees South Korea as his real avenue of opportunity here? I think he does see the opportunity to improve relationship with North Korea. And, and given that um, President Moon is really dedicated to uh, the cause of inter-Korean peace, I think um, uh, probably uh, none of his predecessors have shown so much dedication as him in, in the recent years. Um, and I think this, is a, this opportunity of sustaining the momentum of inter-Korean summits that happened uh, last year um, is something that, that Kim recognizes. And I think it comes useful for him at this juncture of time to have both kind of warm embrace from Moon and Trump um, and very positive uh, reception from the host Vietnam at the same time. I don't think it's either or, um, whether a kind of situation, whether he, you know, good relations with South Korea will surface in that regard. But I think it is quite um, a conducive environment for Kim at the moment to, to, to try his negotiation cards. Yeah, but I, I agree that we'll have to uh, manage our expectations to, uh, to what the summit can actually deliver. But I think it is important uh, that the diplomatic um, process is continued. What, what always fascinates me about watching summits between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un is we're dealing here with two leaders, both of whom have a capacity to surprise and to disappoint. So very much when we speculate about summit agreements, I think it's a matter of watch this space. It could go well and it could go horribly wrong. Yes, watch this space and manage expectations. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. See you next time with a special episode from the Australian International Airshow at Avalon. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't forget to rate us on iTunes.